Hi everyone, I'm Rachel Terry. I'm the Programme Lead for Climate Adaptation at Van Oort. Today we're going to start with our mini-series for the Climate Adaptation. Three podcasts in the lead-up to the Climate Adaptation Summit where we will talk with different guests about their perspectives on climate adaptation and how we can take the next steps to protect vulnerable coastal societies from the impacts of climate change. Let me introduce our first guest. Today, we're joined by Professor Gail Whiteman. She's a Professor of Sustainability at the University of Exeter in the UK. Welcome, Gail. Welcome to our first podcast. Thank you, Rachel. Delighted to be here. Really nice to have you. Maybe we can start with a short introduction from you about yourself, about your background, and what something exciting that you're working on right now. Well, well, thank you. So I am a social scientist that focuses on how top decision makers in business and policy make sense of climate risk. So what I do is I look at how the natural science uh, data that we have showing climate change now and in the future and try and figure out how does that enter into the boardroom and how do executives uh, make sense of that, appreciate that risk, and build plans to mitigate and adapt and prevent those risks from spiraling out of control. So that's that's what I do. That's really exciting. And um, could you give some nice examples yeah. of, uh, yeah, of so, how that's working out for yeah. you? <laughs> well, I think that, you know, there's a lot of work still to be done to saving the planet. So I certainly haven't uh, made such a big contribution uh, at this stage. There's a lot more to be done by lots of people, um, including yourself. But there's probably two examples here that would be relevant um, uh, for the podcast in in terms of the work that I do. The first one is that I'm professor in residence at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. That's um, a a leading organization of about uh, 200 uh, CEOs from companies that are leading on sustainability. And I have an advisory role, a part-time advisory role, where, where I bring in um, various different kinds of natural science uh, and try and communicate that into a global risk uh, narrative and, and help those com- companies see what are the, the planetary threats that uh, collectively uh, societies and economies are facing. And the second uh, thing that I do that is relevant here is that I am the founder of the Arctic Base Camp, which is a not-for-profit science communication platform where we bring real scientists to the World Economic Forum at Davos every year and set up an Arctic base camp science tent and we brief uh, attendees at uh, at Davos on the global risks coming from climate change and specifically coming from Arctic change, which is really a barometer of, of global risk. So those are two examples of the work that I try to do, which is to bridge the gap between science and decision makers, those that have power and need to make science-based decisions uh, to hopefully scale up action on climate change. Oh, that's really, uh, really powerful and very interesting to hear about. But indeed, as you mentioned, so it's coming from the scientific background and trying to bring that into the business environment. But maybe I think we all think we understand what's happening with climate change in the world and what challenges it's going to bring us. But it would be really nice to hear from you, uh, from the scientist, in your own words, if you could explain that to us as well as part of this. 
Well, great question. Thank you, Rachel. I think in order to really understand what is happening on climate change, we have to take a step back and look at the Earth system. And don't worry, I'm not going to do sort of a a, a Natural Science 101 uh, online Zoom lecture here. But what I am going to try and do is just say that, that, that climate change isn't happening in isolation. And one of the good scientific frameworks that helps people and executives understand that is something called the Planetary Boundaries Framework, which what it does is it summarizes tens of thousands of scientific studies um, and, and identifies the nine key ecosystem processes that govern a safe space for humanity. So the Earth system can survive in many different states um, and has done, uh, of course, uh, over time. But there, there's a certain sweet spot for humanity and that spot is really governed by nine different uh, ecosystem processes within certain thresholds. And climate change is obviously a key one uh, and is one that is really uh, rapidly going beyond the safe uh, threshold. But it's not the only one. And I think here it's important to understand that, that biodiversity loss is massive and a real global planetary problem. And in fact, it, it will affect the ability of uh, the Earth system to be resilient in the face of climate change. And that then will affect uh, uh, the amount of food uh, 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 that, that we can produce as humans. So we hear things about the bees and pollinators and we got to protect them, but it's not just that, you know. Um, uh, biodiversity has got really important roles to play to get us in that safe space and is definitely, definitely uh, past um, a, a safe threshold. It's not the only one, again, that's past a safe threshold. I think if we look at nitrogen and phosphorus, which are um, uh, two, uh, two ingredients, so to speak, in how we do industrial agriculture, the, the amount that we use of those and the amount that we put back into um, uh, the water and land system uh, it is also past a safe space. And you get big algae blooms, say, like in Lake Erie that happened um, near Toledo a, f- a few years ago. And, and that's based on, on, on how much phosphorus is coming into the, the, to the system and creates huge problems um, uh, 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 for people and, and, and societies. In addition, though, we know that there's huge pressure on freshwater use. Although there's a lot of freshwater out there, um, it's not in the right places and climate change is making that I- I- increasingly difficult. Um, land use, huge pressure on land use. We keep converting land. Um, there's some examples of restoring land, but not enough uh, to, to, to bring us back into a, a safe space. We also have uh, problems uh, with air pollution. Uh, we know in big cities around the world, they're clogged. That was one of the benefits of COVID, for example, that, that we could breathe again in some of the big cities, whether those were in Asia or in London. Um, there was quite a significant difference in the air pollution. And scientists don't really know globally what is a safe threshold for the planet in terms of those fine part- particles that are in the air. We do know, based on a city, what's wrong, but we don't know. We don't know collectively. Um, ocean acidification is a problem in different places, and that's where the ocean's chemistry changes related to climate change, and that threatens um, marine life and uh, our fishing industry and, and, and food from the ocean. And um, we also have um, uh, uh, ozone, the ozone uh, layer that, of course, has been under threat for, for, for some time. And, and maybe that's the good news, that we can show that with good policy and business action, we can actually make a difference in, in, that, in that area. And we've really done a lot of good work with ozone uh, uh, um, protection. So if we look at climate change, Rachel, it is one of many key threats that are happening. And it certainly is one that is the most dangerous right now, and the window is closing 
uh, on, on really staying within a 1.5 uh, aspirational target of a warmer world or or hopefully definitely below a two degree warmer world um, but it's not it's not the only one yeah indeed a very serious problem and thank you for highlighting it for us there uh, with a scientific explanation although agree not science 101 but still really really good to hear it laid out and and how complex actually this the situation really is for our planet um what we see is indeed that climate change together with the other items that you mentioned as well is going to bring challenges for our global society in the coming decades could you maybe highlight some challenges which you think we're going to be faced with yeah great great question i mean one of the things that that is always hard for even uh myself is to sometimes somehow really um understand that climate change and the threats and the impacts are happening now and when I'm sitting here in sunny Lancaster, the world looks pretty good. Um, when Lancaster is facing floods, it looks less good, but we kind of forget about those pretty quickly in, in, in some ways. And I think that's just normal um, human psychology. But climate change is not a future impact for or for some other set of people. Um, it's really something that is happening now. And one of the best ways to look at that, I think, is to just see what's happening in the Arctic, which is a place where I do a fair amount of my um, work in terms of bringing Arctic change into the boardroom and, and trying to explain to executives why there are risks uh, that are important for them coming from what seems like a very remote and beautiful region uh, in the far far north. Now, the Arctic is warming at two to three times the global average and is having tremendous temperature spikes. This last summer, uh, we saw Siberia on fire, you know, uh, with tremendous um, heat waves and then fires and then something called even more uh, frightening uh, by the press called zombie fires, which are fires underneath uh, the permafrost that con may consistently burn even uh, over the winter in a, sm a slow smoldering sort of way, but then pop up and of course releasing um, uh, permafrost and, and, and potentially methane, uh, methane gases. We also see, though, that 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 the Arctic uh, summer sea ice is is melting rapidly. We've lost a, close to fifty percent of it since um, uh, uh, forty years ago. So big loss, and and Greenland is is of course the glacier that's that's the ice sheet that's melting and 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 creating problems. Now, why would you care? So again, why would I in Lancaster or somebody in London or someone in California or somebody in Rotterdam, uh, for example, why would they care about what's happening in the Arctic, um, unless you were thinking you were going to have uh, um, a, a trip there, or you want to see the polar bears, or you were hoping the shipping routes uh, would open up. Now, I think you would care because as the Arctic sea ice uh, changes, emerging research is showing that it affects uh, weather patterns around the world, especially the mid-latitudes, which means things like the California wildfires, which were tremendously out of control this year, but have been a problem for the last couple of years. Those appear to be related to the loss of Arctic sea ice, which changes the polar, the jet stream, which changes how weather happens. So you get more droughts, which causes more fires. You can get more flooding. You get more polar vortex, extreme cold temperatures coming in as that band of air takes, lets Arctic air seep down. And then on top of that, you also have uh, an increase in terms of how the storms, so the hurricanes surge surge up uh the say the coast to the east coast of the the US and and they seem to stick around in place longer so the research is showing that as the arctic sea ice goes 
that will mean that those storms hang around longer and just create more damage. Then you add on top of Greenland, and Greenland, of course, is an ice sheet. And as that melts, and it certainly is, uh, future estimates are that if that goes, we, we increase global uh, sea level rise by, by uh, up to seven meters, perhaps slightly more, which is tremendously large. Now, that would take a long time, but even little bits of sea uh, 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 level rise, so it affects coastal communities. It affects them both in terms of just erosion and, and things you're seeing around, around the world, but also affects them when we combine it with the extreme weather. So if we have these storm surges coming in um, and, and there's sea level rise, even you know a few centimeters, that creates huge pressures on um, the infrastructure systems of coastal communities around the world. So it's a big, it's a big threat, and that's happening now. And that is related to what we've put in the atmosphere and how the Arctic has responded to that. Yeah, really interesting. Thank you, Gail. And if I hear you, then the Arctic is like our early warning system. Uh, although, as you highlighted, science, science have known about these challenges for quite some time, uh, and I think trying to be address uh, trying to address these challenges for quite some time, uh, and it is happening now and will potentially worsen the coming uh, decades. Maybe I can phrase it like that. Um, but now with the knowledge we have from science, exactly what you are explaining to us, uh, with the need for policy uh, from governments globally and also for business to step up, how would you say that we can better collaborate with the, between these different pillars in our society to, to accelerate action uh, and, and make sure that we're not going to have millions of climate refugees or uh, destroyed infrastructure in the coming period? You know, I think, you know, as much as science, uh, the data show a story that is, it can appear to be doom and gloom. I think at the same time, we are seeing uh, such a groundswell of commitment to action on climate change and the other problems that I mentioned earlier. So in many ways, starting this year, 2021, I am more optimistic than I have been uh, for a long time. Uh, part of that, of course, is, is that we're seeing more and more um, uh, governments and businesses unite behind the science. So 15 years ago, you heard a lot more questions about the, the climate science. Was it valid? How much? Et cetera, et cetera. That we're not, not really hearing. I think the real question is about how can we scale up and how can we scale up fast? You know, of course, the incoming U.S. administration that appears to be at least uh, 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 interested and focused on climate science and believing uh, what scientists are, are showing them in evidence um, also gives gives me hope because that that means that we can move forward. But we also see um, uh, tremendous movements um, in China as well, uh, with their increased commitments around um, uh, how quickly they can get to net zero, and they're listening to the science. Now, I think that the the, the multi billion euro question will be is how fast and how collectively. Uh, we can scale up those solutions. And and 2021's the banner year for that. We've got the Conference of the Parties with the UN meetings at the end of the year. Uh, and I think the real, the real uh, litmus test uh, for governments will be is how much they are going to increase their national commitments. And are they basing that on the science or are they wishing the science wasn't correct? And, and we just can't wish away physics. That's, that's a shame, but we can't. Oh, very true. Uh, yeah, with a scientific mind 
also myself, I uh, I completely agree. We can't wish away the science, uh, very much so. Yeah, I think uh, it's really critical. And you raised something there about also, I, I'm very happy to hear that it's not all doom and gloom. And I hope 2021 is absolutely a year of action from all aspects and all parts of society, uh, be it governmental or science or uh, corporate business. Uh, but I think up till now, what I've seen at least is that there has been an incredible focus and very positive steps indeed to mitigate climate change and the uh, and to reduce and to focus on the net zero and you highlighted absolutely some positive examples there from China from the new US administration do you think it's also important in light of that even when we come to for example net zero in 2050 we will still see and are already seeing these uh, large impacts as you highlighted the droughts the fires the coastal flooding um, how can we also make sure that we uh, reduce the impact on the lives of people around the world who need to be able to adapt to be more resilient yeah because un- unfortunately there's enough co2 that's already in the atmosphere that will mean that climate has changed and that will carry impacts so not just on the mitigation space, which is still really important because we can't have runaway climate change. That's catastrophic. So we need strong mitigation, uh, and that's the race to net zero. But at the same time, you're right. You know, we're going to need to globally and collectively build adaptation um, or adaptive capacity uh, for societies to withstand the impacts of climate change and biodiversity loss and the other stuff that are already that's already happening, and 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 that's important. And I think uh, you know there's also a, been a big uh, uh, collective surge on the idea of what kind of uh, things like nature-based solutions can companies and governments in some sort of collective uh, effort. How can they do that? How can we build the adaptive capacity of our societies? We can't just all migrate somewhere else. That's that's obviously causes conflict. Um, and also just where do we go? Um, that's also, uh, you know, maybe Canada, Russia, but still complicated. Um, and we know borders can close. Uh, so we have to build adaptive capacity. And I think those are those are real world solutions that, that need to be sca- scaled up. And that's happening now. And, and you know, Five certainly ten years ago, nature-based solutions were not really well talked about, and and I can really see how that that is is happening. Yeah, that's really uh, good to hear as well, and it's it's great because it's two areas where Van Ord is also uh, focusing on. So we are launching this month our climate risk overview, which is actually where we're trying to bring all the scientific data. We use a lot of open source uh, data to try and highlight in a global tool. Uh, where are those most vulnerable coastlines which are going to be faced with exactly what you said sea level rise combined with uh, very severe storms which are going to impact also very populated areas of our coastlines uh, but also a lot of the ecosystems which are along our coastlines which are not able to adapt uh, as easily as we'd like like mangroves and coral reefs uh, because of the other impacts of climate change Uh, so indeed collaborating that tool where we can highlight the areas most at risk together with um, how can we do that in a nature-based or building with nature way is really important and then we come back again to the collaboration between a business like Fanord which has the willingness and the wish to um, provide these coastal protection solutions for these vulnerable coastlines in a nature-based way 
but needing the science community to support us, to work with us, to make sure that the solutions that we are delivering are in fact sustainable and having a net positive impact. And I think that that's very challenging to find a balance between science and, and competitive and corporate business. Do, do you, how do you see that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that, 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 that's true, but I think that is potentially the sweet spot or the spot of innovation where we can take science out of just academia, which they still have to do really rigorous science. So that is never going to go away, but they have to engage with, with, with those organizations or collectivities of organizations, business and other uh, uh, um, public uh, that are looking at the solutions because it makes no sense to invest all the money and the effort and the energy to do stuff that doesn't actually help solve the problem, right? And and um, and I think you know what we're trying to do with Arctic Base Camp, for example, is build that linkage between science and those that are experimenting with solutions to try and see how that works. So if we're doing an Arctic Risk platform, looking at how that translate into coastal communities with something like what you're doing could be an interesting way of saying, hey, how do those pieces fit together? So as we have this Arctic alarm bell going off, then it, it, it makes it relevant to coastal communities and then coming up with where, where are those solutions. So I think there needs to be this new way of working together. It's no longer siloed. It has to be almost a coalition of the willing and the expert across areas. And, and, we, and we've certainly seen that. We've seen that with some of the work that Christiana Figueres, of course, did with Mission 2020. I know she's been um, speaking at Van Oort in the past. She's a tremendous leader uh, uh, and, 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 and has the ability to bring many people together uh, from different areas to work on common problems. So we need, we need more of that. And, and I also think the Race to Net Zero initiative of the UN um, high-level high level, uh, global action champions uh, leading up to Glasgow is also about bringing in the cities, the business, the government, the civil society, and the science to say, what are we doing? Um, but but I, we certainly need to do more of that. And then have that, that, that sort of that due diligence done by science to say, is, are we going in the right direction by doing all these things? So collaborating and challenging each other as well to make sure we all stay on, the, on a good track. And absolutely, you highlight a couple of great uh, examples there, the Race to Net Zero, where governments, uh, corporates and science are collaborating together. And I'm really excited that they're adding the Race to Resilience as well, which really fits with the work we're trying to do with climate adaptation. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're very excited for that in the build up now, starting with the Climate Adaptation Summit in the end of January through till COP in Glasgow in November this year. Uh, so lots of work to be done in 2021. Uh, I'm really happy that you mentioned nature-based solutions and that we're having a discussion about that because I think that that's critical indeed in delivering sustainable solutions to the challenges we face. But one of the uh, issues or challenges we face with nature-based solutions is financing them. Um, and there I think science and business and, and policy can work together as well uh, because sometimes a lot of people wouldn't make the natural choice to pay for, uh, let's talk about coastal protection, a hard a uh, concrete wall versus perhaps uh, a mangrove forest to protect a stretch of coastline uh, because it's much more difficult to put scientific and engineering uh, facts against a mangrove forest as it is against 
a solid concrete wall. There's probably some psychology behind that about why people probably feel safer maybe behind a concrete wall than a mangrove forest. Uh, but I think there we also need to find a way to collaborate to make these nature-based solutions bankable. And I think science and business can collaborate there as well. Yeah, and, and we do try to, you know, encourage the financial community to really also reimagine what they should be financing uh, because they've got a really, they're a really important driver of change. We know that green bonds, for example, I mean, that's, you know, exploded in terms of new financial instruments, but it's not enough. And I, and I think especially, you know, when we looked at, at some of the, the, the financing decisions that were happening in the U.S. under the, the, the well, the current and, and soon to be past administration was going back to business as usual. And, and I think we, the world just does not have time for that. So how to scale up um, uh, the, the financial community uh, even beyond what they're doing? I mean, green bonds are great, but if they're still investing in old style stuff, including fossil fuel, then that's not helping. That's not, and that's not uniting behind the science. It's kind of occasionally uniting behind the science. And that's not what you can do. It's not like being a little bit behind the science. You got to be behind the science fully. Yeah. So less cherry picking yeah. and more dedicated commitment yeah. to what the science is telling us. I like that very much. Um, let's uh, step to another topic. You're, you're an expert, as you, you explained in your opener, on global risk and translating this risk of climate change for businesses uh, and how they can make sense, for example, of complex problems or build resilience as a business uh, across different scales with these environmental pressures or social inequalities that uh, will only be exasperated by climate change. What would your advice for uh, a company such as Fanord be? Well, I think my first piece of advice would be be brave. You know, uh, I, I do think that the issue of courage is uh, uh, really important in 2021. We saw that courage became very important in 2020 um, in very unusual ways, of course, with the pandemic. But this is the, the year that, that, that every company, including Van Ord, has to jump past its own shadow of looking at self-interest. And I understand we all have self-interest, you know, I have to pay my mortgage too, but we are faced with a collective threat to humanity, even bigger than the pandemic. And I think we need real leadership and we need real courage. The second thing I would suggest is really start to integrate the science into the strategy of the company. I'm, I'm sure you do that. I, I, I don't know, so I can't comment per se, but it, it's not, the science is not just something that's occasionally comes in. It is really, it, it really needs to be core because if you're uniting behind the science, you're uniting behind the science and then looking for, for collaborations where you can make it a win for the company. So we, we do need to have it a win for our individual organizations, but we do need to have, have courage, which gives us that slightly longer term perspective on maybe some of the investment decisions that we would, we would want to do. So uh, I'm not a consultant, uh, so I can't, I can't really say what Van Ort should do, but those are some of my uh, uh, thoughts. Yeah, I think that, well, I'm very happy with these words, uh, Gail. I think it's great advice. Um, and I think you touched on something interesting with COVID there. I think COVID has been a real learning or turning point for a lot of uh, people. Would you say that you see more companies taking this more seriously now and, and heeding this kind of advice? And that do you think companies can be more confident to be more courageous? 
contagious in light of how well we've handled the pandemic? Yeah, well, the good question, because I was worried that the pressure and especially that economic pressure on companies during a completely um, perhaps unforeseeable, although science, medical science warned of it for a long time, uh, but, but this huge economic pressure on companies, governments around the world. I thought, I was worried that, that actually climate change would go down the priority list. And I did a series of interviews actually with the World Business Council's um, members uh, and some of the executives and some of the board members. And the feedback was really consistent that actually boards realized that even though they thought they knew about systemic risk, they didn't know enough. They didn't always have crisis plans uh, in place, but they rose to the occasion quickly. They really agreed that they needed to work collectively across organizations. They saw governments struggling um, and often walked into that, that governance gap and that gap in action to say, okay, we're going to make um, ventilators. We're going to do this. We are going to make sure our people and our communities are safe. And then they said, well, what other systemic risks are coming that we're not really preparing for. So there is a resurgence in interest. And actually, what I have been hearing, and let's hope it's true, is that there is increased commitment to actually being brave, working collectively, and putting humanity before the economy. That will be difficult, but I, I think there has been you know, a resurgence in support for um, uh, climate action. And then the final thing is, I think a lot of executives realized they didn't have to fly around the world to go to a meeting. They could do it by Zoom. <laughs> and, and that actually was good because they didn't have to travel as much. And there's this whole idea of, well, we don't need to get to Singapore for a keynote. Let's, I'll do it by Zoom because we're all used to doing that. So that has changed uh, some of that footprint as well. Yeah, and that's, it's really nice to, uh, to highlight some of the positives coming from what was for many, many people a very challenging year. Uh, so yeah, let's focus on that positivity going into 2021. Uh, perhaps I'd like to just uh, close on a more personal angle and ask you, for you as a person, what drives you to work in this field and pursue a career in this arena uh, and gets you out of bed every morning? Oh gosh, I, 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 that's a hard question. I, I mean, I guess it's because I was always very curious um, about the state of the world. And then when I, I, I went into academia, I, I started off actually in business um, before I went back to academia. And I went back to, to academia because I was interested in figuring out all of those things that business was perhaps having unintended consequences on but they didn't know how to understand them or pay attention or measure them or solve them. And then I understood the science and I said, well, I yeah, once you understand the science, I think there's an obligation to stand up and try and in a small, tiny way, which is what I do, try to make a difference and share what you know or come up with solutions and, and do that. And and, you know, I have two teenage boys and, you know, I, I, I see them as generation CO2. They're 16 and 18 and they will be faced with a world filled with CO2 um, and they are already uh, in that world, whether they know it or not. And that drives me. I, I feel that I want to be able to be, you know, part of, 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 of the resistance and of the, the brave new world that, that, that tried to make a difference. So, 
not overstating um, the small impact that I would have, but just saying that gives me energy. I feel that I'm not part of the problem as much as I used to be. I am more part of the solution, although certainly I'm not leading a, a perfectly um, low carbon life myself. Uh, so that's what drives me. Well, I think you're very modest about the impact you're uh, having, Gail. Uh, we were very excited to have you on our, our podcast and very inspired by your energy and the work that you're doing and the explanation which you've given to me and to our listeners about climate science, about the impact actually it's having already uh, and is going to have and uh, actually why we all need to step up and have courage and take action. Uh, so I thank you very, very much for joining us uh, in this uh, podcast series. Uh, I'd like to inform our listeners that our next podcast will be with Hank Oving. He's the special envoy for water uh, who will be joining us next week to talk about the political situation and how we can collaborate between business and politics and rightly, as Gail informed us, also with science. Thank you for listening. Thank you.